Well, I would ask that you would open your Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 10. This morning we're going to be looking at the last three verses of what is commonly referred to as the fourth of the servant songs. There are four of these songs in Isaiah, and we're going to look this morning specifically at um, the one called the suffering servant. And these will be the last three verses of what is said concerning uh, this prophecy of the suffering servant, and we know him to be our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us read God's word together, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, did you notice something about this passage? It reads like a psalm. It is poetic in nature and not a narrative. Probably why they call it the servant's song and not the servant's narrative. And being poetic, um, it doesn't follow the servant chronologically through the text. It skips around, and it repeats aspects about him. And the point that I want to make is the way we're going to handle the text this morning is because of this poetic nature. We're not going to begin with verse 10 and work our way through verse 12. We're going to take it as a whole, organically, and look at three aspects of this servant. And the three aspects that we're going to look at concerning the suffering servant this morning are these. First will be the servant's destiny, the servant's destiny. Second will be the servant's accomplishment. And third will be the servant's rewards. So the servant's destiny. The Lord has a plan. He has a desire. He has a purpose for the servant. And the purpose for the servant, the will of God for the servant is to crush him to bring him to grief, to have him offer himself up as a guilt offering. What was done to our Lord by the hands of sinful men was not according to happenstance and circumstance, but it was according to the preordained will of God. Sinful men crucified him. For that they are accountable. But ultimately, it was done to fulfill the will of God. Of the Lord. Now, why was the Lord's will for the servant, the destiny of the servant, to be crushed? 
It was for the atonement of sin. Under the Old Covenant law, it was a guilt offering that sin was atoned for or was atoned with. Uh, Listen to Leviticus 6, 6 and 7. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. Now, did the old covenant sacrifices atone for sin? Absolutely not. And this is clear to us from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what did the old covenant sacrifices do? One, they reminded the people that they had sin. Thus, they were continually having to bring sacrifices before the priests to be made for their sin. And second, they were a sign and symbol to point the people unto one who would come, who truly would be the Ram of God, who would remove and atone for sin. Only the servant's sacrifice of himself atones for sin. Now, the unique thing about our Lord is that he is both priest and the sacrifice. It is he who sacrifices himself for sin. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death. In the Hebrew, the word soul, nephesh, as many of you know, simply means life. The Hebrews didn't hold it as an aspect of some part of the person that could exist outside of the body. It meant life. Soul meant life. And so he poured out his life to death. The image here is that of an old covenant sacrifice. The life of the animal was poured out when he was sacrificed. When his blood was poured out, the life was in the blood. And our Lord, as priest, sacrifices himself. He pours out his own life unto death. And so he says so in John 10, 18. No one takes it, that is his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. What was the servant's destiny? It was to be both priest and sacrifice and to give his life as a sacrifice. That was the destiny of the servant. Now, what was the accomplishment of the servant? What did he accomplish in his sacrifice? And the answer is simple. It was redemption. He accomplished redemption in his sacrifice. And there's two things concerning this sacrifice that we see in the text before us. First, he bears the sin of the sinner. And secondly, he imparts righteousness. Double imputation. 
taking on the sinner's sin and imputing his righteousness to the sinner. First, the uh, imputation of the sinner's sin to the servant, verse 11. He shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many. In verse 13, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was not a sinner himself, but he bore sin of sinners. Their sin was imputed to him, and he bore the wrath of sin. Just as it was mentioned the other day, dear brother in the morning mentioned how uh, the priest would place his hand on the animal's head and symbolically transfer uh, the sins of the people to the animal. And so our Lord, sin was transferred to him, not symbolically, but actually was imputed to him on the cross, and he bore that sin. Secondly, the servant's righteousness is imputed to the sinner. Verse 11, he makes many to be accounted righteous. He is counted with the transgressors by taking on their sin. And he intercedes for the transgressors by imputing to them his righteousness. Double imputation. Now, note who this double imputation is for. It is for a particular group. Verse 11, make many accounted righteous. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many. The many is the particular group. And there's two things about many. The first thing about many is many is not everyone. It was not an unlimited atonement. It was an atonement for a specific particular group, and the group is the many. Now, one of the things that I read in preparing for this message was um, a paper written. Uh, it was probably a sermon that was turned into a paper, but it was written by an Amiraldian brother. And he does a very good job handling the text until he gets to the part of the atonement. And he says in his paper that it was for all of mankind. And I'm reading along, and he's doing a good job, and I see that all of mankind, and I, I just want to say out loud, I almost said out loud, don't read into the text. It doesn't say all of mankind. It says the many. Our Lord imputed his righteousness. He took on the sins of a particular group. It was not all, but it was the many. The other aspect of many is that it is no small group. You know, sometimes when we think of limited atonement, we think that the sacrifice uh, was limited to a few. And that's not the case. Many is not few. Many uh, is a lot. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. How many sons were brought to glory? Uh, an innumerable amount. Amount that we cannot or one cannot even count. Uh, we're given uh, this information from Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. 
says, After this, John speaking, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who are these standing before the throne? They are the many sons who are brought to glory. Many is not a few, and yet many is limited to a particular group. The other thing about the servant's accomplishment of redemption for the many is this. It is a forensic justification. It is a forensic justification. Forensic is a legal term, um, a term that is used in a court of law uh, when a verdict is handed down of not guilty. It is a declaration of not guilty. And once someone is declared not guilty, that is it. That is the end of the matter. They are released. There is nothing else to be done. They don't go back to court to be declared not guilty again. It was. It is over. It is closed. It is finished. And we know the last words of our Lord on the cross in the Greek. It's one, tetelestai. And in translation, it is finished. It is a forensic justification make many to be accounted righteous they are accounted righteous a declaration of justification and this declaration of justification is applied through faith through faith one is declared not guilty now I think one of the greatest travesties of the modern evangelical movement, modern evangelicals in general, is that they, they don't understand this aspect of forensic justification. And, it, and we know they don't because they keep wanting to reunite with Rome all the time, wanting to make up with Rome and bring Rome into the fold. And I don't think they would if they fully understood justification. An example of this is I, I know a lady, she worked at a Baptist primary school. And I was talking with her one day, and her son was going to get married to this Roman Catholic girl, um, and uh, the son claimed to be an evangelical. And the mother told me, you know, I really don't see a difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And I thought, you don't understand justification. We believe in a forensic justification. And Rome holds to the aspect of infused justification. And the heart of the Reformation is based on the difference between forensic justification and infused justification. Rome believes that justification is moral and that it is physical. And there's Besides being not biblical, there's a number of problems with infused justification. The first problem is that only the Roman Catholic Church can infuse justification into you. And they say that they can do it through the sacraments. Through the sacrament of baptism, through the sacrament of the mass, through the sacrament of the, of the uh, last rites and a number of other sacraments. I think there's seven. I may be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But they hold to infuse justification through infusing grace into one. 
You know, the other problem besides only being able to get justification from Rome is that their justification, well, it leaks out. You, that's why you have to keep going back and getting refilled with uh, their grace to get reinfused with justification from Rome because it, it seems to leak out. And so you constantly have to go back and get more and get more. The, the other problem is, is you never know if, you, if you've been given enough. Um, you're never assured of salvation. Because you always have to go back and get more, and you never know if you have enough. And the last aspect, the last problem with Rome's understanding of justification, of infused justification, is that it is a moral aspect on your part. In other words, Rome doesn't separate sanctification from justification. They are joined together. And what that means is, is that you participate in your own justification by your own works. Now, if I was Romish, that would scare me to death. Because if I'm dependent on my own works for justification, uh, I know I'm doomed for sure. Because my works are always tainted with sin. It is forensic justification that justifies us. And our forensic justification is declared just through faith in Christ. What does the servant accomplish in his sacrifice? He brings many sons to glory. The third um, aspect of the servant and the last aspect of the servant that we look at this morning in the text is this. The servant's rewards. The servant's rewards. Now the question is, does the servant receive rewards or does the servant give rewards? And the answer is yes. The servant both receives reward and the servant gives rewards. What are the rewards that the servant receives for his work, for his work of atonement? The first is he receives the reward of the resurrection from the dead. Um, the servant pours out his life unto death, but he does not remain dead. How do we know that from the text? From just the text in Isaiah. Now, we know it because we know the Gospels. We know uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're just looking at the text, how do we know that? How would the Jews have known that? Because it says the servant sees. Twice it's mentioned that he sees. De- the dead do not see. Only the living see. So we know that he is alive, that he has been raised because he sees. And what is it that he sees? But he sees another reward. And the other reward that the servant sees is that of his offspring, his heritage. He sees his people, those whom he has redeemed. Verse 10, he shall see his offspring. His offspring are his reward. Listen to verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The image of that is one of that of a woman in labor. You know, in labor, when a woman goes in labor, it is anguish. Uh, that's why they call it labor. 
And so she is in anguish and labor, and yet when the child is born and she sees the child, the anguish is gone, and all she has is joy and satisfaction. And that is how it is with our Lord. Our Lord labored greatly over our sin, greater than any woman could labor and labor, by the way. He labored greatly on the cross, and yet it brings him great joy, great satisfaction when he sees his people born anew, born again. Luke 15.10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. His reward is his offspring, and he rejoices in them greatly. The other reward that we see mentioned here is that of eternal life. Verse 10 mentions his days being prolonged. It is speaking of the resurrection of his body and his eternal life. The servant is given eternal life to live forevermore. You know, last night our brother Steve Markadon mentioned that Jesus is a man. We know the two natures of Christ. He is both fully God and fully man. And yet sometimes I don't think we contemplate the aspect that it's a man that is on the throne. It is a man that sits in heaven. It is a man that rules over this world. And that man will live for all eternity in his resurrected body. By the way, this is one of the gifts that the servant gives to us, his people. He will give us a resurrected body. It is something that we will receive as a gift. We don't have it now. We do not get it, of course, till he comes again. And then we will receive our eternal body forever. The last reward mentioned here for the servant is this. It is both of portion and spoil. Verse 12 reads, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, there's two ways that this passage can be interpreted. Uh, One aspect is that the passage can be interpreted that the many and the strong are actually the reward and the portion. In other words, we're going back to to the heritage and the offspring aspect of the reward. Um. Alec Motyer believes he, uh, this, and he translates this Hebrew passage uh, to read like this. Therefore, I will apportion to him, that is to the servant, the many, and the strong he will apportion as the spoil. That's how he sees it, that the offspring are, are the uh, reward. But it could be interpreted in another way. The other way that it could be understood is that he, the servant, receives something of value that he shares with his offspring. Uh, This is the view of of John Bright in his book, uh, The Kingdom of God. He uh, explains it in this regard, this passage. And he believes that the servant, what happens is, is he wins a kingdom. And he shares the spoils of that kingdom with his people. Remember David uh, in his 
slaying of the Amalekites. He and his mighty men attack the Amalekites and slay all of them, and the Amalekites have great spoil with them. All of that spoil is David's. You know, David was the anointed king. Of course, Saul was sitting on the throne at the time, but David was still king, and he got all the spoil. In fact, all of his men say, you can look, I'm speaking out of 1 Samuel 30 here, you can look at it. His men say it's David's spoil. It's his. And yet, what David does with that spoil is he shares it with all of his mighty men. He apportions it out. And that very well could be what is occurring here. Our Lord receives portion. He receives spoil, and he gives that portion and that spoil to his people. Those are the rewards that the servant receives. What about the rewards um, that he gives out? Now, we've talked about that a little bit already. The greatest reward that he gives, that he received, is that of resurrection and eternal life to his people. That's the greatest reward that we receive, that he received, and he gives it to us. And there is this aspect of Christ sharing the reward of the kingdom, of the riches of the kingdom with his people. You know, the charismatics, um, they have it half right. They get it half right. We are promised health and wealth, uh, but they have their timing out of, their timing's wrong. It's not the health and wealth now, not in this world. Our best life certainly is not now, but it will be in the world to come. It will be in the kingdom, because in the kingdom we do receive riches and treasures. In fact, We walk all over the treasures, the streets of gold. And yet, that is really not the greatest reward from our Lord, the health and wealth. It is the aspect that we will see him face to face, that we will live for all eternity with him in glory. That's that's the greatest reward of all, not the temporal things that we might receive now, and not temporal things of, of riches. All of these things the servant, our Lord, procured for himself and for us on the cross. The destiny of the servant was to give his life as a sacrifice. The accomplishment of the servant was that he atoned for sin to bring many sons to glory. And the reward of this atoning work of the servant is these rewards that we've spoken about already, the rewards of a people and sharing those rewards with the people. To Christ, the suffering servant, alone be glory. Amen.